This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You ready to study God's Word together today? Please turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. If you were here last week, we introduced this short book study on the Old Testament book of Jonah. And in this short study, we're going to learn God's relentless grace for rebel hearts. Rebel rebel hearts for the likes of Jonah and for rebel hearts like you and me today. Last week, we were introduced to this prophet whom God commissioned to go preach to a very pagan people in the influential and extremely wicked city of Nineveh. And the text exposed Jonah's prejudiced and nationalistic heart as he refused to bring God's redemptive message to Israel's sworn oppressive enemy. And as a result, Jonah fled as fast and far as he could in the opposite direction on a boat steered by a group of pagan sailors. But God pursued his runaway child. He used a storm, he used some unbelieving sailors, he even used a miraculous calming of the sea to bring salvation to pagan sailors and also to wake up his disobedient prophet. When we last left Jonah, he was swimming in the sea and sinking to the bottom. But in our making our way through the first chapter last week, we learned what it means to diagnose missional disobedience in our own lives. What it means uh, to know what God wants us to do and then deliberately disobey that call. But I want you to know that we can also expand the application. Expand the application not only to the missional realm, but also to any disobedience of God. Because each one of us, friends, each one of us disobeys God in various ways on a daily basis. Sometimes we disobey in very small ways, and they might even seem insignificant ways. But there are other times that we really, really blow it. We blow it big time. And like Jonah, our disobedience leaves us despondent, racked with guilt and shame, in circumstances that we cannot explain and never thought we would be in. And we can even be doubting our place at God's table. We wonder, is God even still with me? How could he ever use a wretch like me after what I have done? Have you ever been there? It's quite possible that you could be there Today or even this week. So this morning, we're going to move to Jonah chapter 2. And we're going to do a couple of things. Number one, we need to get Jonah out of the water. And so we're going to do that this morning. But also what we want to do is we want to see Jonah's response in the midst of his missional disobedience. And we're going to see how he dealt with his missional disobedience. And as we see how he dealt with it, what I want us to see this morning is that God is giving us a roadmap so that we know how we deal with it when we've really blown it with God. And we're going to see that as we go through the text this morning, so that whether it's in small ways 
or in significantly demonstrative ways, I want you to see God's mercy and grace when we blow it big time with God. And so I'm actually going to pick up in the last verse of Jonah chapter 1, and then we're going to start Jonah chapter 2. And so in verse 17, here's what the text tells us. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Sorry, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's a wonderful image to think about at 11 o'clock in the morning before lunch, right? So as Christians, and I want you to know that I'm talking to Christians this morning, but if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that I want you to be peering in Because as you hear how God deals with his people in the midst of sin and disobedience, I want you to be peering into this conversation because I want you to know what to expect from God and with God if you were to become a Christian. So this morning is for everyone, but these principles are for those who are in Christ. So as Christians, what happens when we blow it with God? Well, here's the first thing that the text is going to tell us today. God pursues us in those moments with sovereign mercy. God pursues us in those moments with sovereign mercy. In this entire account, Jonah is not the only one running. God continually chased after his prophet. And for those of us who are God's children, a truth that we can rest in today and hope in today is that the Lord never lets go of his people. No matter what it is you have done, no matter what it is you are currently doing, he won't let go. And I want you to see a couple of things at play here as we think about his sovereign mercy running after Jonah. First, see his sovereignty over your circumstances. See his sovereignty over your circumstances. In verse 17, we see the sovereignty of God on full display. Don't miss this. Don't just read this as just a passive explanation and description of what happened. Verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed, 
a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Why is this significant? Who in this room can look at the animal and sea life and appoint them to do anything? But the text tells us that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God pursued Jonah first through a storm, and now he's pursuing him through a big fish. Now, we aren't really sure what kind of fish this was. I know in our children's Bible study lessons and vacation Bible school, we always say that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. The text doesn't tell us that it was a whale. It could have been a whale. Maybe it was a, a sperm whale or a blue whale, which are some of the largest whales uh, under the, the ocean. But it definitely wasn't a largemouth bass, okay? We know that. It was a very large fish. But regardless of what kind of fish it was, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what kind of fish that it was. Because regardless, we learn in the text that God is the sovereign commander over all of his creation. In chapter 1, he, we saw that he's sovereign over the atmosphere and weather. In chapter 2, we see that he is sovereign over the over the creatures on the land and the sea. And throughout this entire narrative in these four chapters of Jonah, we also learn that he is sovereign over the circumstances and the affairs of his people. Now, I want us to think about this this morning. If God was sovereign over Jonah's circumstances, you and I can be certain today that he's sovereign over yours. I can be certain today that he is sovereign over mine. And if he relentlessly pursued Jonah in the midst of his disobedience, you and I can confidently know that God will relentlessly pursue you. He will relentlessly pursue me in the midst of our disobedience. He won't let his children go, no matter how disobedient we may be. So see this morning God's sovereignty over your circumstances. But I also want you to see his mercy. See his mercy over your disobedience. See his mercy over your disobedience. Believe it or not, the great fish served as the mercy of God. When we left Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah was literally sinking in the deep abyss of the ocean blue. And that's when the text says that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was, uh, the, the fish was the rescue for Jonah. And the belly of the fish served as God's mercy house for Jonah. And it was mercy because Jonah didn't deserve rescue. Jonah didn't deserve rescue for what he did. Jonah didn't deserve rescue for his disobedience, but mercy and rescue is what Jonah got. And friend, that's what mercy is. As a matter of fact, that's at the very core of the definition of mercy, that God gives us, God does not give us what we deserve. You see, in the text, we see that Jonah's disobedience was great, but God's mercy was greater. Peter Craigie points out that the text has been depicting Jonah from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2. He has depicted Jonah as descending 
going down to Joppa, down into a ship, down into the depths of the ship, and now finally he goes even further down into the very depths of the ocean, but not until he was all the way down. He says, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, now was deliverance possible. Keller then remarks, there was a fatal flaw in Jonah's character, and it had lain hidden from him as long as his life was going well, and it was only through the complete failure that he could begin to see it and change it. Friends, this is such the way of God in dealing with his children's disobedience. Like running out of gas after seeing how long we could actually drive the car on fumes. Or like the irresponsible student who constantly walks on the danger edge around that balance line of zero while writing checks or using their debit card. God uses our circumstances oftentimes to wake us up to his mercy. And so often, don't miss this, so often he has to bring us to the end of ourselves in order to draw us to himself. He has to shock us in our sin in order to wake us, wake us up. To his mercies. And oftentimes, he brings us very low in our sin in order to lift us up higher than we've ever grown in his grace. And God now had Jonah's attention. And when you look at the second part of verse 17 in chapter 1, after he was in the belly of the well, it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God now had Jonah's attention, and while he was there in the strangest of places, it was time to do spiritual surgery in Jonah's heart. Sometimes God will do the exact same thing with you. He'll bring you to the end of yourself, even through a very shocking or embarrassing act of disobedience or period of disobedience, And then in his mercy, he will bring you to the spiritual operating room to transform your heart. And in those moments, you might even ask in your guilt and shame, how did I even get here? How did I even get to this point or to this place? But the better question in those low moments quite possibly could be this. Where will God take me from here? Where is God going to take me from this very low and shameful place? So Christian, when you've blown it, when you've blown it with God, when you've even possibly blown it big time, know first this morning that God will relentlessly and sovereignly pursue you with his mercy. He'll run very hard after you even as you attempt to run really fast away from him. And then secondly, how do we respond to this merciful pursuit? How do we respond? So secondly, we respond to God with desperate prayer. We respond to God with desperate prayer. We see this desperation as we look at chapter 2. So then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, don't ignore that. Jo- Jonah's response When he sees the mercy of God, he wants to pray. He does the right thing here. And he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. When Jonah called out to God, unlike his unbelieving cohorts on the ship in chapter 1, Jonah wasn't sending out a random shout to the sky for just anyone. No, in verse 1 and 2, he cries out to Yahweh. He calls out, calls out God's personal name. He calls out to the personal God whom his salvation was found in. Jonah knew exactly whom he was calling out for salvation. So Jonah's cry to God here is instructive for you and for me. But I want you to see something else here. Jonah didn't pray just because. He prayed because he knew just how bad his circumstances were. Look at verse 3. Out of the belly of Sheol, he says. Now in the Old Testament, that word Sheol usually refers to the grave or death. But in a spiritual sense, specifically it referred to the realm of divine punishment and death. Throughout the scriptures, it is used to describe catastrophic events of the highest order. To put it in today's language, Jonah was in effect saying, my life at this point is literally a living hell, is what he's saying. He was keenly aware of how destructive the consequences of his disobedience were. Jonah knew that he had no one else to blame for his pain and his suffering other than himself. He couldn't put this on the sailors. It wasn't their fault. He couldn't blame God for God was the one he was actually running from. He couldn't even put it on the mere chance of his circumstances because it was God who put him there. It was his disobedience that ultimately brought him into this mess. Now, how different is Jonah's approach here than our modern approach? Very rarely do we as human beings ever want to take responsibility for our disobedience. Very rarely do we want to take responsibility for that which we do against God or other people. Our natural reaction is self-justification. I was right to do that. Or, well, you know, this really isn't as a big a deal as what other people might do or think. Not only self-justification, oftentimes our natural reaction is to blame, right? We oftentimes have a difficult time coming to grips with the fact that what I did was my doing. I wanted to do it. I chose to do it. I deliberately disobeyed, and as a result, I hurt myself, I hurt others, and disobeyed God in the process. That's not our natural reaction. But as imperfect as Jonah's example was, what he got right here is that he began dealing with his disobedience. Which is so instructive for you and me today. I want you to hear this this morning and you might even want to notate this in your notes. You might want to write this down. I want you to hear this. When you've blown it with God, 
the best way to deal with your disobedience is to deal with your disobedience. That's worth repeating. The best way to deal with your disobedience is to deal with your disobedience. I know the human heart. Because whether you remember it or not, I am human and I have a heart. I know the human heart. I know that when you're in these moments that you are tempted to run away from responsibility. But I want to encourage you to run towards it. I know that you're tempted to evade God and avoid praying, avoid confessing, avoid repenting. But take heart this morning. God is far more ready to hear your prayer than you are to muster up the words to even pray to him. And I know that you're tempted to think that God can never forgive you this time. Not for what you've done. Not this time. Not for you. But again, take heart. Because God is far more ready to forgive you than you are to ask him for it. So deal with your disobedience by responding to his pursuit of you. Respond to his mercy for you. And you can respond by crying out in desperate prayer to your merciful God. And as we pray, as we cry out to God, as we recognize our desperation, I want you to be ready. Be ready to receive his answer. And here is his answer. A third component of God's process for restoring us after we've blown it. Number three, God answers our cry with lavish grace. This is such good news, friends. God answers our cry with lavish grace at the heart of the Christian gospel, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is the supernatural mystery of God's mercy and grace to us. A people who have sinned against him and sinned against others, a people who are very guilty, people who deserve his punishment, people who deserve his banishment and exile but instead we receive his mercy, grace, and adoption. Now we've already seen this morning that in his mercy, God does not give us what we do deserve. But now we're going to see his grace. Because in his grace, God lavishes upon us what we do not deserve. And this is at the heart of the Christian gospel In God's mercy, he does not give us what we do deserve. And through God's grace, he lavishes upon us what we do not deserve. That's at the heart of God's response to belief in the Christian gospel. So let's see a glimpse of this in Jonah's life here. So what we're going to see is we're going to see a glimpse of the gospel in the belly of a fish. A glimpse of the gospel in the belly of a fish. Here's what I want you to see first. I want you to see your moral bankruptcy. I want you to see your moral bankruptcy. Look at how Jonah describes his circumstances. In verse 2, he says that he's in the belly of Sheol. In verse 3, he says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Now, although there is a literal nature to his description, he was literally in this sinking abyss, you cannot get a complete picture of this account without also thinking about his spiritual condition as well. Jonah knew he was morally bankrupt. Jonah knew that he had nothing morally upright in and of himself before God. And the reality is, you nor I have anything of morally redeeming value before God or moral purity apart from his work in our lives. We have nothing to bring to the spiritual table. This is not a thing of God does his part and we do our part. You have nothing. Your spiritual bank account at birth is empty. It's actually in the negative. Like you are in debt. You have no currency with which to spend. Now, contrast this with the philosophies of your culture. Your culture tells you that what you need is more self-esteem. Or you need a greater sense of worth. Too often you're told that you're not even ultimately responsible for the way you are. There is some person or some thing, there's some reason that you can pass off your sin onto. We're also told that morality is a social construct. It's what society concludes that it is. This is a very dangerous proposition, by the way. Just consider 1930s and 1940s Germany. But it's not even a social construct. In America today, it's even a personal construct. Morality is what you want it to be. You're told to live your truth and to live it well. But when 7 billion people all live their own truth, then any sense of objective morality ceases to exist, thereby abolishing any need for objective design, divine justice against violations of that objective truth. But Jonah knew the state of his heart. I wonder if you know the state of yours today, that apart from God, you're morally bankrupt. Jonah knew his moral bankruptcy. He was keenly aware that God brought him to this place of reckoning and he only had his own moral bankruptcy to account for it. Secondly, see your spiritual impotence. See your spiritual impotence. Not only do we have no moral purity in and of ourselves, but we also possess no spiritual power to do anything about it on our own. We're helpless. We're even hopeless left to ourselves. Look at verse 5. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's in a debtor's prison. Not only is he morally bankrupt, but now he's spiritually locked behind bars with no key to find relief and rescue. Friends, left in your moral bankruptcy, in your sin, in your disobedience, the text says that God's bars closed upon me forever. And you are powerless, spiritually impotent to do anything about it. You cannot atone for your own disobedience. You cannot pay God back. And there aren't enough good works for you to perform. 
As a matter of fact, God's not even looking for performance. Hear this. He's looking for surrender. He's not looking for your performance. He's looking for your surrender. So see how incredibly spiritually impotent you are to do anything about your moral bankruptcy, the sin and disobedience in your own life. But here's the third gospel truth we see here in the belly of the fish. See also his costly grace. See God's costly grace. Now here's where we see the gospel on full display in the life of Jonah. And it's really good stuff. In verse 4, he says, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. All right, So that's the desperation of his spiritual condition. So he says, yet, yet, see that word connotes hope. So I'm driven away, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple look at verse 7 when my life was fainting away see desperation hopeless but when i remembered the lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple now why does jonah look towards god's holy temple well that's a great theological question and i'm going to seek to answer it now why why because he knew that it was over God's mercy seat in the temple where God made provision for the sinfulness of humanity. The mercy seat, it's where God promised to speak to us. In the temple, the mercy seat was a slab of gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant housed the Ten Commandments of God. And what happened is once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood from the, from the spotless lamb in order to atone for the people's sin. And so when Jonah's looking to God's temple, when he's looking upwards to God, he has that in his mind. Because it was the remedy, it was the pathway for forgiveness in the Old Testament spiritual economy. But even though that's the reality, there is no way that Jonah could have ever known in that moment all the fullness of what that meant. Because the things of the Old Testament and the sacrificial systems that existed there were only a shadow of the things yet to come. They were pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice. This Old Testament picture of God's grace ultimately points towards the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus that perfectly completed what the temple sacrifices incompletely foreshadowed. And we read this in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. See, it's only momentary. They're constantly coming back every, every year. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, verse 14 says, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I don't want you to run past that last line. If you have been born again in this room today, if you are a follower of Christ in this room today, You've repented of your sins. You've placed faith and volitional trust in this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
At that very moment, his blood is activated on your account and it proves you spotless and perfect in God's eyes. It's what the writer of Hebrews says, that for those who have believed that we have been perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So let me ask this question. What is it that you can disobey God in that would ever change that reality? That is the hope of the Christian gospel. That's our hope in the midst of our sin and disobedience. That's the good news for Jonah. That was the good news of Jonah, that that there was something fixed that he could look towards and go back to to remind himself of his position before his God. And this is the good news for every Christ follower today, particularly if you find yourself in a situation where you've really blown it before God and who among us has not been in that dire circumstance feeling the weight and the guilt that accompanies that if you are in Christ if you have turned to him for salvation then I want you to know this truth this morning God is 100 he is a thousand percent pleased with you today because of Jesus Christ And there is nothing that can change that. There is nothing too disobedient you can do to make God any less pleased with you today. And there is no level of obedience you can attain in order to make him more pleased with you today. God's acceptance of you is totally, 100%, unquestionably predicated upon the work of Jesus on your behalf. And if you're in the room today and you wonder why we talk about the gospel so much and why we talk about the cross so much and why we talk about Christ's resurrection so much, it's because it is the very foundation and basis of our existence as a human being and follower of Jesus Christ. Because we are spiritually bankrupt, we are spiritually We are spiritually impotent. And his grace was so costly in purchasing our redemption on his behalf. How can we pay anything and contribute to what he's already paid? The great Charles Wesley in his hymn, Amazing Love, wrote, Well might the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I see them all and thousands more. Yet if you are Christ, Jehovah knoweth none. Yet if you are in Christ, Jehovah knoweth none. None. The truth is, this truth is the foundation of the Christian gospel. God's lavish grace in response to our desperate need and prayer. And as Keller suggests, this grace, I love this imagery, this grace should be the constant background music of our lives. Particularly in the middle of our day-to-day disobedience. This lavish unconditional, unearned, free grace of God is the default lifestyle in which every Christ follower is called to live and operate. So, what do we do when we blow it in our Christian walk? Well, God pursues us with his sovereign mercy. And as he pursues us, we respond to God with desperate prayer. And as we pray to him, God then answers our cry with lavish 
grace. I want you to see this last component here. The gospel then redeems our disobedience for missional purpose. The gospel redeems our disobedience for missional purpose. You go on to verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Parenthetical statement. Although Jonah is giving us a great example to follow in so many ways, it's very hard not to read verse 8 in two different ways. And, and I, think that, that I think it's probably true that it, it, we, could, we could take this in both of them. In one way, it's probably a safe assumption to think that he is grappling with the vain idols of his own heart. Perhaps he is coming to grips with his own prejudice and, and his nationalistic zeal that would cause him to disobey the mission of God in his life. But because that zeal and that nationalism and that racial animosity towards the Assyrians was so thick to cause him to disobey God, it's hard not to read this without thinking that Jonah has a little bit of a superiority complex here. That he's also right now contrasting himself against the idolatry of the lost Assyrians to whom he's about to commit to go preach to. But then look at verse 9. So even in the midst of his imperfection, so we see his humanity, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So he may be getting it partially, but he's getting it. And friend, this encourages me. And I hope it encourages you. I think oftentimes in the midst of our disobedience and as we seek the forgiveness of God, anything short of 100% complete eradication where we never experience this again or never think about it again, we just think that God is done with us and we're not useful. But I want you to see even in Jonah's example, as imperfect as he was, he's partially getting it and he's partially not getting it. And there are times where you're going to partially get it. And there are going to be times where you're partially not fully understanding what it is that God is doing in your spiritual life. But if you learn nothing else from Jonah's life and ministry, please learn this. God is the God, the ultimate God of second chances. And he will use any of us for his purposes, even after anything that we have done. God never throws those who are his into the trash heap. He never discards disobedience as mere rubbish and says, I'm done with you. He never lets you go. And what we learn through Jonah's disobedience and restoration is that God never disciplines his children without intending to change his children. His discipline is never for his children merely punitive that's the heart of God's discipline he wants to change us so let's see these couple of final truths before we close this morning in our disobedience the gospel proves redemptive in our disobedience the gospel is redemptive look at the change look at the change in Jonah's language in verse 9 but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. Where have we seen this up to this point? 
That's right. Nowhere. We haven't seen this posture before from Jonah in the text. We haven't seen this attitude from Jonah before. But God brought Jonah to the end of himself in some very calamitous circumstances. And Jonah's life starting to change. His disposition is starting to change. He's singing a very different tune. I don't think Chris Tallman wrote it, but he's singing a new song. It's different. And in verse 10, deliverance is actually going to come for Jonah because the Lord spoke to the fish just as he spoke to him the first time and the fish vomited Jonah out on dry land and he redeems Jonah's circumstances, yes. But he also redeems Jonah's heart and mind. God disciplines his people not to be solely punitive. His discipline is also formative. He chastens us to change us. He brings us to the end of ourselves in order to make us more like himself. He even uses, don't miss this, he even uses our disobedience to shock us back to our spiritual senses and bring us back to the truth of God. I wonder if there's a thankful Christian in the room today. In that sense, he even redeems our disobedience. I pray that this is good news for somebody in this room this morning. That there's somebody who needs to hear that. I want you to know it's good to be solemn over your sin. It's even good for you to feel the crushing weight and the guilt of it for a season. It's healthy to appropriately grieve over your sin for a moment. Jonah did that too. But he didn't sit in it forever. And neither should you. Neither should you. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, wherever you are, wherever you're coming from, will you allow God to redeem your disobedience, to take your disobedience and make something beautiful out of a garbage heap. That's what God specializes in, is taking junk and making it treasure. And so will you this morning allow your God to redeem your disobedience? Will you allow him to change you, not around your circumstances, not over your circumstances or under your circumstances, but will you allow him to change you through your circumstances? And he'll go through them with you. So in our disobedience, the gospel proves very redemptive. There is nothing that you have done or are doing where God will simply let you go if you are his child. And lastly, in our disobedience, the gospel not only proves to be redemptive, the gospel also proves to be purposive. The gospel proves to be purposive. He says at the very end, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Finally, Jonah is aligning with the mission of God. Finally, Jonah is coming to grips with the fact that God wants to do something through me. 
God wants to use my message. He wants to use my circumstances. And he even will use my disobedience to make a name for himself among others. He says salvation belongs to the Lord in verse 9. And here's where we see a grand truth, brother and sister in Christ. God extends his mercy to you, not so that you can hoard his mercy and say, look how mercifully obese I am because I just receive it and I just allow his mercy to fill me up and make me bigger. I'm just one big merciful mess, right? That's not, that's not the ultimate purpose of God's mercy. No, here it is. God extends his mercy to you so that he might show his mercy through you. God is very merciful to you so that you will then go be very merciful to others. And we're going to see this on full display next week when we get to Jonah 3, and we see the proclamation of God's salvation to the wicked Ninevites. But this morning, as we close our time together, We need to reflect upon this as Christians. As Christ followers, we need to be grappling with the fact that God wants to take us in the mire of our circumstances, in the mire of our disobedience, and the mire of our sin. And He wants to change us, yes, but He also wants to change other people through us. Christian, know this this morning. There is nothing so heinous you've done There's nothing so dirty that you sit in today and there's no regret, guilt, or shame you feel today that God cannot and God will not use not only to change your life but also to change others. There is no finality in the body of Christ if you are in Jesus. There is nothing that is irreparable and that hope needs to sit in our hearts today So that that lavish grace becomes the background music of our lives.